Please turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Actually, we'll pick up at the end of chapter 12. 1 Corinthians, in our consecutive exposition of the book of 1 Corinthians, this is where we come to today. 1 Corinthians, mainly chapter 13, but we're going to pick up just, just a small amount of chapter 12 and chapter 14 for context. With the snow outside, you're some serious people. Here you are this morning. I gotta say, uh, it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful day. But you ventured out. We began this section in First Corinthians chapter twelve to fourteen as a subset of the overall passage, and I recommended a book to you. It's by Don Carson. It's titled "Showing the Spirit." And just to give you some context for how much ink has been spilt discussing these three chapters alone. That's how thick the book is, which is just an exposition of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Now, I bring that to your attention this morning for the studious among us. You might want to pick up this book and read it, Showing the Spirit by Don Carson. Uh, we have one of our Bible college students in town today, Matt, and his wife, Emily. It's good to have you this morning. Nice to have you from uh, sunny South Louisville, but it's not south and it's not sunny, so it's nice to have you anyway. But uh, a few of you might want to read it. But I just, I, the reason I want to bring it up really is to show that 1 Corinthians 13 has a context, and that context is 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Right? What, right, what is right around it in the text is essential to understanding the text. So we call this a love passage, and we take it a la carte at weddings and funerals from time to time. But do we realize its setting is in the context of the giving and appropriate using of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. The section begins in chapter 12, verse 1, with a phrase, now concerning, which in intimates that it's beginning, indicates it's beginning a new section of discussion in Corinthians, where Paul, the apostle, is answering the questions that this church had about being a church. They were a church plant, and this is the early AD 50s. They hadn't been around that long. And so now concerning, he's going to write to them about spiritual things or spiritual gifts we discern from context also in chapter 14, verse 1, the same word is used. So we have chapter 12, chapter 14, about that which is spiritual, spiritual gifts. These grace gifts we've learned in the last two weeks are given by God the Spirit, and these spiritual gifts are given for the local churches building up, not tearing down. The giver of the gifts, God, does not intend for us to have friction based on which gift one person has versus which gift another has. Last week, we learned that the metaphors for the church in the, New in the New Testament include a flock, a building, a bride, but a body is the one that 1 Corinthians 12 picks up on, the church as the body of Christ. So the body parts, or the members, as 1 Corinthians 12 talks about over and over again, the members of the church, the parts of the body, are healthy when they mourn at appropriate times and when they rejoice at appropriate times. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is recorded as saying, when you should have been crying at a funeral, you were rejoicing, and when you should have been rejoicing at a type of a celebration, a wedding, you were mourning. You didn't know what, you didn't have the aptitude to know what was apt in the moment. You were not in touch with spiritual things. Jesus is lambasting the religious elites of the day for not understanding what time it was and how to respond. That is likened to what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. 
where it says that in the body we're supposed to have the same care for one another. We're supposed to to feel even uh, we talked last week even something as small as a as a toe, seemingly insignificant as one of the toes, which a doctor said once you could live without. We should feel the pain of that toe, and we should rejoice whenever there is something to rejoice about in the body of Christ. Now, all metaphors make break down, but the metaphors of the New Testament concerning the church are meaningful because they help us to understand the significance of the church in the economy of God and how the church local cannot be divorced from what God is doing in His people's lives throughout time and in this time. Membership does matter. It's why we teach a course in the church titled Membership Matters. And if you haven't taken that course, you just circle that on your tear-off today so we know your interest because membership really does matter. It's meaningful. 1 Corinthians 12 mentions members in the church or in the body of Christ over and over again. 1 Corinthians 13 must be read in light of this overarching theme of spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, verse 28 is going to show a listing, and it's very similar to chapter 12, verse 8, where there's listings of different spiritual gifts. Now, we do not appear to be experiencing all of these gifts that will be listed today. Whether that's because they've ceased or we've ceased to desire them, we have not yet declared in this series. Stay tuned for chapter 14. There's much about that, and we'll talk about that then. But we'll read right past them today and just note that they are a list and we'll note a couple of other things in chapter 12 at the very end, that there are, there are questions that are designed to elicit the answer no. You'll hear them in just a moment when I read them. It's as if to localize the gifts and to understand that they are apportioned to some and not every member. Does everyone have this gift? No. Does each person have this gift? No. It's as if to make clear that we should not create a hierarchy of gifts. For example, the problem at Corinth is it appears that they had made the gift of speaking in tongues requisite as a greater gift, perhaps even sometimes requisite for salvation. And what we find in today's text is that if you know God, then you are loved by God, as it says in another place in Corinthians. And love is our thing because we all have to have love because we're spiritual. God has made us spiritual. We are godly converted. We're being saved. And so love is absolutely essential. So whether the word that comes to us in this chapter as desiring greater gifts is a slogan being rebuffed or a statement being asserted. What we find in chapter 12, verse 31, and also in chapter 14, verse 1, which will be the last verse we read, is that we are to desire gifts appropriately, but that we are to demand love effectively. The point is that the road or the way is love. The implication of this passage is that without love, we will always make a mess of the gifts that God has given us. So without further ado, let's read this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, getting into and leaning into chapter 13 and ending with chapter 14, verse 1. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members, members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping administration, and various kinds of tongues. Now here's that list of questions I talked about, verse 29. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And, and just a quick pause, the implied answer is, no. Okay. We already talked about that. I'm trying to clear the deck for chapter 13 with this. So now, now verse 31. 
But, now whether this is to be an indicative and imperative, the translators here think it's an imperative. It says, earnestly desire. You earnestly desire. It could be, you've been earnestly desiring the higher gifts. He's saying, I think it's right to say, you need to desire the higher gifts, whatever that is. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. This is a present, plural, all of us actively desiring those gifts which are higher. And then he gets off into the beautiful, beautiful text that we love so much for weddings and read often even at funerals. And I will show you a still more excellent way. You know that, don't you? I'll show you this more excellent way. Some of you can rattle it off now. And now you know the context of where it's set in Scripture, in the context of divisions over spiritual gifts, in the context of where the church was getting it wrong. So it's it's set right in the middle here. This we must have, this, this highway, this road, this way, this street. I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And he goes off into it. I'm just going to read straightway now. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest, the greatest of these is love. And that's the eighth time the noun is used, love, in this passage. Finally, chapter 14, verse 1 alone. Pursue love. Go after it. It's an imperative. Go get it. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, that word desire is the same Greek word translated as desire in chapter 12, verse 31. It bookends this subset within this section. So chapter 12, verse 20, verse 31, but earnestly desire the gifts higher, the higher gifts. Now, chapter 14, verse 1, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Do you see that? That's important, Bereans, as you study the Bible this morning. It is important that you catch that. So I'm going to say it again. Desire, chapter 12, verse 31, gifts. gifts, And then chapter 14, verse 1, desire gifts. So we are to desire gifts, appropriately desire gifts. And we are to appreciate gifts. But the highway that gets us from gift to gift, if you will, place to place in the life of the church, is a highway named love. 
The roadway is love. And so it's almost like having these wonderful landmarks on Route 66 and not having the route, not having the road. It's almost like having these great places you want to go throughout the Northeast and not having an interstate system to get you to and fro. Love is the road that gets you through these wonderful gifts. And without love, we are absolutely nada, nil, nothing. So the way I want to discuss this passage this morning is to look at chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, love's necessity, the necessity of love. Then chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, love's characteristics. What are the characteristics of love? And then finally, chapter 13, verses 8 through 13, love's permanence. So if you want to write down three words to follow, verses 1 to 3, we'll be thinking of necessity. Verses 4 to 7, we'll be thinking of characteristics. And then verses 8 to 13, we'll be looking at permanence, the permanence of love. So let's look first at love's necessity. Glance back briefly with me at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13. Refamiliarize yourself, start to let it sink in a little bit, what the Apostle Paul has written as holy writ, as scripture that is now in our canon of scripture today. This is God speaking to us by his word, and he says something about music. He says something about symbols. One preacher commented that the clanging of a gong is still common in many nations, such as like Singapore, for pagan worship. One preacher commented that at Corinth in the first century, since the Roman Empire was smitten with paganism, it was the religion of the governing authority, paganism in the early AD 50s would have been common. So perhaps right down the road from where Corinthian Christians would have gathered to worship, they would have been able to hear the driving out of demons hoped to be accomplished at the same time as the gathering in of adherence by the gong. The clashing of a cymbal. Now, I'm not a gifted percussionist. I don't play the drums. I don't understand that much about music. I enjoy playing the guitar as a hobby, something I get a lot out of. I really appreciate music. I love the music that we get to do together as a church. We get to sing together. It's beautiful. I commented on it earlier. So I don't claim to be an authority on music, but I think I know this much about music. If you just take symbols and you just do it over and over and over and over again, you've kind of put the accent in the wrong place. That's not great music, is it? I mean, I know if you're like a hair metal band, it's close, but it's not great music, is it? And I think we can all agree on the main that no, it is not. We don't just hit, it's not just symbols over and over and over and over again. Symbols are an accent and the overall body of music. And I think that's exactly what the the point that you're supposed to get from verses 1 to 3 is that love is necessity. It's the lyrical line. It's the melody line. It's it's the song that the band, the ensemble, the group is, is, is singing, playing, bringing to your attention, putting before you. It's the song. But you've taken something like the gift of tongues that apparently angels are involved in and certainly men are involved in, and they've just put the accent on it, and they've forgotten about love. And and apparently it is possible as a church corporate gathered, as a people, as as a church, apparently it is possible to forget about love. Apparently it's possible to forget about the necessity of love. And I think about that based on 
if you'll allow me a little bit of an excursion, the Ephesian church. Now, you just think mentally, if you're, if you're new to this, just kind of hang with us. But for those of you that have been around for a while, there's a whole book in the New Testament that is so titled as Ephesians or the church at Ephesus, right? And Timothy, there are books written to Timothy about how the church is to be organized and led, First and Second Timothy. We call those the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. So there's a lot of literature in the New Testament about the church at Ephesus. Think about how often Ephesus is written about in the book of Acts and the missionary journeys that included the church at Ephesus and the final meeting with the elders. And then finally, and what I want to point out now, think of the problem and the benefit that the church at Ephesus had as a corporate church with their lampstand, as mentioned in Revelation chapter 2. Think of the Ephesian church, how gifted they must have been for all these reasons. But by the end of the first century, when there's no mentioning of tongues being made in Revelation 2, Revelation 2 reveals a dire problem. The Ephesian church was not acting in love. They were not pursuing love. The church, this problem of not loving properly, could cause the church to no longer be in existence in Ephesians. So take heed this morning. Chapter 13 is talking about a problem that seems to have come to fruition with the church at Ephesus later in the same century. It's so serious because everything else we do, all the giftings we have and the organizations, the organizational things we hope to accomplish and the strategy and and the tactics and everything else, it's all in jeopardy if we lose love. It's like a a well-tuned car, all clean and greased and, and oil changed and gassed and then just driving it right off into the high water of the Ohio River. It's gone. If we have not love, it's like having something so well mechanized and yet having it taken away, having it disappear. I mean, that's the problem in Revelation. And you know, I'm just going to kind of point you to that to read that on your own. But I think that that Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7 is definitely talking about a corporate church's love and how it can grow cold. Jesus said he had this against the church at Ephesus, Revelation 2.4. The church had abandoned the love they had at first, it says, even while simultaneously not growing weary and bearing up and enduring patiently. They were working hard against false teachers, and they were examining and even confronting false teachers. And Jesus actually praises them for that indirectly. He says, I have this, I'm for you in this. You, you do not tolerate the Nicolaitans, which apparently indulged in idol worship and sexual immorality. So the Ephesian church were truth people, and they were battle-tested. These are the people you want next to you if you've got to go to war. These are the kinds of spiritual leaders, apparently, gifted people that you wanted. And yet Jesus says through the vehicle of John the Apostle in Revelation, he says in chapter 2, Remember the heights of love from where you have fallen. And he says, repent. This is a sin issue to be repented of. That is that their love had grown cold. And he says, get back to that. Repent and get back to that that love that you had earlier, that you had at first. Do Do the works of love that you did at first. Do it for the reasons that you did it at first. A question from reading passages like Revelation 2 begs the question, what did they do at first? What, what, what was it like to operate for love's sake? What did they stop doing that it was so serious that Jesus was willing to remove the church's lampstand if they didn't repent, the church at Ephesus, that is? I'm not entirely sure what it is that they had stopped doing. 
I'm not really sure the Bible clearly spells out what it means to lose your first love. Maybe it's kind of like the thorn in the Apostle Paul's flesh. Maybe we're not really supposed to know. It may be that we're supposed to kind of have a sense when our love has cooled off, a sense when we need to retool and refocus on not just what we do, but why we do it, a sense of when we need to revisit the, the love that God has for us and the way that in order to abide within the, the greatest, the first and the second commandment, we must love God and love neighbor as ourselves. Apparently, Ephesians, uh, Revelation 2, rather, about the church at Ephesus is meant to remind us of exactly what 1 Corinthians is telling us, and that is that we must travel in love and not get so fixated on the accents of the symbols of the special gifts that we lose our love. It seems that hating the blatant sin like that of the Nicolaitans was half of the coin. But Jesus tells us in Revelation 2 that the other half of the coin is to love like you did it first. To love like you did it first. So we can sin not just by commission, but also by omission. They would not commit the sin of following the false teachers. As a matter of fact, they were strong on doctrine, and they should have been. But they had lost their love. They were omitting to love. The why behind the what was in jeopardy. This life is about more than gospel risk management, friends. This life is about gospel sharing. It's about loving Jesus as you did it first. And I just think this morning that in order to understand properly 1 Corinthians 13, you have to visit the first seven verses of Revelation 2. And I've tried to do that with you with the brief time that we have here. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. This is love's necessity It talks about music and how the accent is the tongues and the gifts and the special gifts and so on. But the main course is love. It's the road by which we must travel. And he says that you can do great things. And if you don't have love, that you are in grave danger. Listen to how he says it. You can have powers and understand stuff and have faith as to move mountains, obviously referencing some of the great miracles of Jesus and the apostles. He says, if you don't have love, you don't have a thing. The necessity of love. He says, you can give everything you have away. Think of Ananias and Sapphira and their faking. And think of others that actually gave everything away. I think in church history of George Mueller, you could give everything away. But if you don't have love, what do you have? He says, this necessity of love. You can turn your body over to be burned. You can be a martyr. You can be in Fox's Book of Martyrs. But were you to not have love, what do you gain? I would feel bad about making such a statement if it wasn't right there in black and white. I mean, who am I to ever say something like that about a martyr? Well, I don't because I am a weak and wounded sinner like you. But the Lord has said that it is important not just to defend the right doctrine, but to do it for the right reasons from the right heart. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, in light of the fact that love is necessary. Do you love? I want you to think about this this morning. Do you love? Do you love the other people that sit in front of you and behind you and across from you? Do you love? And we'll try to bring some characteristics to love in a moment. It's, it's, it's difficult to define. It's, it's going to be very difficult to define. It's almost like looking at the sky and saying, what is that? You're like, well, it's kind of blue, and I see some, I see some clouds in it. And 
read something about cumulonimbus, and you're like, what is the sky? It's almost like that in a way. It's vast. It's huge. But we can talk about love, and we're just about to do that based on what it isn't and also what it is to try to get at the thing. But before we go to point two, I just want to pause with you. I want to ask you from the bottom of my heart to yours, do you love these people? And if your love has grown cold, will you repent of that? Like Jesus implored the Ephesian church to repent of their love growing cold. It's not an irreversible thing, but you must repent. Get back to the affection that you had at first for God and his people. I really do worry about this for you and for me. I really do worry about it, and I'm glad that the Lord has seen fit to lead us to this text today. Would you, would you meditate on that? Would you do that today and this week? Love is necessity. Live like it. Do you love? Now, verses 4 to 7 is our second point. It is love's characteristics. Again, difficult to define, but it is the characteristics of love. Let's just listen to these verses in full. Love is patient and kind. Kind of try to count them as you go, what it is and what it isn't. It's patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. Now we're back in the positive category, right? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, I've counted these several times this week. I had seven positive and eight negative. I'm a little ahead of you probably, or maybe you've been a student this week and you've read this and thought about it. So something like 15 different comments there. I think it's seven in the positive and eight in the negative. It's not conclusive or exhaustive about love, but it does offer us a pretty good look at the characteristics of love, right? So let's, let's look at them with a critical eye, a careful eye, and try to understand what love is, the characteristics of love. Because it, let me just tell you why this is important is because we are inundated, surrounded, immersed in a culture and some oftentimes, unfortunately, a church culture that does not rightly describe love. It does not have a biblical working definition of love that would describe the characteristics of love as something different than what would be indicated in Scripture as a whole, and especially right here in verses 4 through 7. So let's think about what love is. If it's, if it's necessary, if it's indispensable, was our first point. Now, what is it? And this text tells us. It's patient, first of all. There's 15 of these. i got to go kind of fast, but it's patient. Is Matt patient? You know, I'm going to use your name here a little bit. And not, not for a kind of legalistic approach to beat you down. No, it's just, it's, it's almost like a just, a just an inventory, a check. Is this something that the Spirit might be growing me in as a result of this sermon. If you're an impatient person, perhaps the Spirit wants to grow you in patience and so on. See, so, so love is kind. Put yourself in there. Is, is, is Matt kind? Right. Love doesn't envy. Is Matt envious? Right. I think about Joseph's brothers being envious of him, and they sold him off into slavery. In Gen- you remember this in Genesis? That kind of envy. Am I... Am I envious? It'd be hard for me to rejoice with those who rejoice in the body of Christ if I'm envious, right? So is Matt envious? Is Matt boastful? Is Matt arrogant? Well, look at me and my gifts and what I can do for the Lord's church. Boy, I'm 
Really got something going on here. Is Matt boastful? You put your name in there. Are you boastful? This might be a place where you have pen in hand and you kind of note the ones that the Lord's dealing with you about this morning. And, and, and for love's sake, of course, not, not to earn your salvation or to beat you over the head with a hammer of legalism, but to say, this is for your growing up in your salvation. Are you a boastful person? Is, is Matt arrogant? Is he, is he rude? He rude? I don't want to be rude. Am I, am I short with people? Terse? I don't want to be rude, do I? That's not love. That's what it's not. Does Matt, does, does Matt insist on, its, on, on his own way? I got to have it my way. Is, that's not loving, is it? Is it irritable? By humbug, I'm always irritated. Is it irritable? That's not love, is it? Is it you? Am I irritable? What about resentful? Do I resent another person or persons in the family, perhaps, even the family of God? Am I resentful in the church for what they've accomplished or the gifts that they seem to have that I don't seem to have? Or am I resentful for overall success? Monetary gain, am I resentful of others? Is that Matt? Just fill your name in, you see. I have to keep moving, but you, you do this exercise. Do, do it on your own after church throughout the week. Uh, do I rejoice at right doing? Am I the person that rejoices when right is done? Or am I the person that rejoices at wrongdoing? Well, I have to be able to define right and wrong in biblical categories to be able to rejoice at what's right and, and not what's wrong, right? So there's a correct. So there's a, there's a grammar issue here of knowing what the Bible actually says about different moral and ethical concerns. But the question still remains for you. Do you rejoice at right doing or do you rejoice at wrongdoing? It says here that you are to rejoice with the truth. So this cannot be a kind of squishy, cultural, defined love that is devoid of truth. Remember the Ephesian church I told you about earlier in this sermon? They weren't wrong for screening out false teachers and denying the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. They were wrong for their love growing cold, but they weren't wrong. It was two sides of the same coin. It was truth and love. Ephesians 4.15 says so, speaking the truth in love. Well, that's more than a soundbite. That's a life motto. Speaking the truth in love. How do you do that? Well, you have to know the truth and rejoice in the truth. So this is never a love devoid of truth. It's not, that's not what love is. As a matter of fact, it's a misdefinition. It's a, it's a mischaracterization of love to define it in terms that ignore biblical categories of truth. But this is not a sermon about defining biblical categories of truth. And so I move on. I just need you to know that that's implied in that verse. And when some people, I'll say one more thing when people say, well, if you just love me more, you just accept me just the way I am and exactly the way that I live. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't because love rejoices in the truth. God doesn't accept you just the way that you are. Well, he accepts you just the way that you are, but he doesn't leave you that way. To quote Max Licato, I think he got that one right. I mean, God loves you just the way you are, but he doesn't leave you that way. So we, we don't rejoice at just the way we are. We rejoice in the truth. And it's not antithetical to love. For what is Jesus if he is not the way and the truth? 
And how do we understand God without 1 John 4 twice making it clear that God is agape? God is love. We've got a whole church in town. Good name for that church, agape. Good name. That's the Greek word translated as love eight times in our text today. Agape means love. What a great place to put the accent. eh? That's the road that gets us between all these things that we're hoping to do, trying to do, striving to do in the gifts. We have no hope of rightly understanding the usage and wielding of the gifts if we have not love. Verse 7, do I bear all things? And I assume that's a body context, a body life of Christ context, a church context. Love bears all. Do I believe all things? Do I have belief? Do I bear with? Do I hope? Do I endure steadfastly? Love never ends is the pivot point there. But let those characteristics minister and speak to you this morning. Um, Sometimes it's easier to describe a thing by what it isn't than by what it is. Uh, But let those characteristics minister to you and speak to you this morning and help you as, as the Word of God we're calling upon God, to speak to us by this word and to do things that we could, couldn't do on our own. So we've heard about love's necessity. We're seeing love's characteristics. And thirdly, verses 8 to 13, we now see love's permanence, the permanence of love, the unendingness of love. And that's exactly how it begins. Love never ends. It's, it's, it's not going anywhere any more than God's going anywhere. It says, as for prophecies, they will pass. As for tongues... They will cease. Now let's pause right there and say that those that hold to the view that the gift of tongues have ceased after the death of the last apostle and are not operative in the church today would cite that verse. We are not conclusively making statements on that today. I'm looking to chapter 14 to try to to talk about that more deeply. Let me simply tell you a problem with that view. Even if you hold a cessation of gifts being operative in the church today, such as sign gifts, such as tongues and healing and whatnot, if you take that view, you have to go other places as well because what it says here is knowledge will pass away. But it hasn't passed away yet, has it? Right? So you have, when you look at this, you have to be careful not to say that tongues have ceased. Well, then why hasn't knowledge ceased? And if you're going to lump that in some kind of a special knowledge, that's a deeper conversation. So whatever, whatever favor you might have towards cessationism, if you read verse 12 on balance with verse number 8, it's difficult to make a cessation case strictly there. Verse 9, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Well, clearly we're, we're talking about when Jesus comes again, right? No more partial, no more partial knowing. We're going to see the truth. It says, uh, verse eleven: When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Well, that's hearkening to our maturity, our need to grow up, isn't it? I mean, when Dick Lucas preached this sermon in America, the great English preacher that he was in two thousand six, I followed his sermon on this because I always like to hear what Dick Lucas says. He's such a great preacher, and he literally summarized his whole sermon: "Grow up." That's what he said. Y'all grow up. I don't think he said y'all because he's from Britain, but he said you all grow up, probably. It was plural. All these yous in this text are plural. It's talking to the corporate church. It's talking to us, much like Revelation is talking to the corporate church at Ephesus, all of them. This is to us. It's saying you all grow up. Paul's saying in the singular, when I became a man, 
I grew up. I gave up childish ways. This is part of operating for love's sake. It impacts along the highway every gifted thing that we do. And verse 12 is such a meaningful verse to me. I hope it'll be meaningful to you. It's meaningful to me outside of this sermon. It's meaningful to me often. I hope this is a verse that you can really spend a lot of time thinking about over the course of the rest of your life. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we see dimly, then we're going to see face. Then we're going to be in the final analysis of things and the consummation of the kingdom. We're going to be with our Lord, right? So right now I know in part, then I shall know fully. A more mature knowing, right? Even as I have been fully known. So just as much as I know and experience the love of God now, He's never going to love us more than He loves us now. He's never going to love us less than He loves us now. He absolutely loves you right now. Just as assuredly as that love has been projected upon you and preached to you by God's holy word, so then will you experience that love and know more fully. You'll see the bigger picture. Some of those why questions that you have, they either will be answered or they won't matter. Just as much as you've been fully known, then you're going to know. And I love this verse when I think about loved ones that have already passed away. I love this verse because I think to myself that as me and Brother Kobe, like we're talking about this, I don't know if he's here today or not, but we were talking about this last week at the, at the lunch. And he said, now, Pastor, do you think when we get to heaven that we're going to know everybody right away, or do you think it's going to be like a process? Man, I just love the question, don't you? Isn't that a good question? And I said, I don't know, but I think it's going to be a process. He said, well, why would you think that? We're going to fully know. And I said, yeah, but I think it's, I think it's like what heaven's going to be like is it's, it's going to be no-name saints on display constantly. Like you all think you're going to want to talk to Paul and Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and all these people, but I, I actually think like it's going to be grandpa and then it's going to be like, like it's going to be people from like four generations removed that I found on Ancestry.com that was a believer and it's going to be like like 800 years ago and there's this really cool uh, you know, person in, in my family tree or maybe not in my family tree. And it's, then it's like we're going to exhaust that and you're going to go to a different genre altogether and there's going to be these conversations. And I'm imagining in heaven just being known and knowing people. Like one great motto in this life is to know God and to make him known. That mission will have been exhausted. We will know God and he will be known by everybody that's going to know him. We won't have to worry with the burden of that mission in that way, as ambassadors for Christ anymore. In heaven, we will know God and we will know one another. And maybe it's instant, but I got to say it's going to have ramifications, almost like an aorist tense of a verb ongoing throughout the whole rest of eternity. Like you're just going to get to know. Right now, your, your fellowship's impaired right now because constantly you don't really know each other like you'd like to. There's misunderstandings and sin gets in the way. It's not just going to be sweet for all of you, for all of the church, and not just for this time, but for all time. Spanning the past to the future, the whole church, you're going to be known and loved. Tim Keller says that the biggest fear you ever have is to be known and not to be loved. That won't be a problem in heaven. He says one of the most shallow existences is to be loved but not to be known. That won't happen in heaven. You'll be perfectly loved and perfectly known. Now, is that worth waiting on, friends? That's love, isn't it? That's us. That's what we have to look forward to, and I love verse 12. Now I know in part, but then I'll be fully known. And it, it, its climax is faith, hope, and love. You've probably heard this, these spiritual virtues, as some call it. Faith, hope, and love. We've got friends that have four kids. They're named Hope, Faith, Grace. 
and then the fourth kid they had, they named him Max. It's, I don't know why they went with Max, so, but that's what they did. Good friends. They say hope, faith, and grace to the Max. But they're certainly pulling off of verse 13, aren't they? This cherished passage. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Just real quickly, there's some discussion about what's trying to be communicated here. It seems that you will walk by sight, not by faith in heaven, because your faith will have been realized. So maybe that one comes to pass. And hope, what hopes do we have when you get to heaven? Maybe you have hopes. Uh, most of our hopes are in that which will be healing and no more sin and injury and insults. And it seems to me that the one thing that's going to be constant in this list between the current time and eternity, it's not faith and hope so much as it's, and I think that's the point. I think that's the point. So we are to pursue love. It gives us this imperative in chapter 14, verse 1. Verse one. It implies persistence, pressing hard after it. Actively and presently and ongoingly, all of us plurally, together and individually, searching consistently out for this thing called love that has been described, though not, per, not completely and exhaustively, but characteristically in verses 4 to 7, and that has been urged upon you as absolutely necessary in verses 1 to 3. And I hope that this love that is a universally given gift in ways that other spiritual gifts are not, I hope that this love, that you are able to rest in it and share it. This love is insured by a higher authority than the FDIC. It's insured by God. And I hope that this greatest of them all, this love, is something that you, if you have grown cold toward, will return to. And if you are actively engaged in this love, I hope that you will be patient with those of us that struggle with the application of this text. Will you be patient with us? Will you? I mean, maybe we have some among us that are a whole lot better at sorting, sniffing out false teachers than they are at demonstrating the unending love of God in Christ. Would you be patient with us? I'd like to end this morning with something I'm borrowing from Craig Blomberg. A, a dear brother gave me a commentary that he wrote, and um, I'm trying to find where I quoted it here, and I can't, so I'm just going to kind of give you the synopsis of it. But he so, he so nailed it here. He said, uh, at the expense of, oh, there it is. I found it just in the nick of time. He said, at the expense of making this sermon feel too much about how bad we are and not how good Jesus is, he said, Try this with your congregation. He said, take verses 4 through 7. And he said, instead of asking them again to make it about them, like, is Matt patient? Is Matt kind? Is Matt rude? And so on. He said, make it about Jesus. He said, tell them this. I think he's sorry. I said, Jesus is patient. Jesus is unenvious. Jesus is not rude. Jesus doesn't insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritated. Jesus is not holding on to resentment with you. Jesus is not rejoicing at those getting what they deserve. And Jesus is rejoicing instead in truth instead of untruth. And Jesus bears with us and believes and hopes and endures right alongside us all things. This is our Lord Jesus, and he's who we worship, right? And so if you feel like a failure this morning, join the club. But you worship one that is not a failure, and he is making us into something very, very new. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, without your love for us, we wouldn't have a clue what it is. And even after having experienced it, we have a tendency to be forgetful and wander. I personally thank you for 
chapters like 1 Corinthians 13. A chapter that calls us back to how we got started. Absolutely broken about your love for us and how we were yet sinners. You had already paid the price for our salvation. Call people into your fold this morning by your grace and help us as a church to be a church that knows how to share the truth but in love with one another for love's sake as we travel down this highway of life. Make us what we ought to be, even though you're still working on me, to the body of Christ, of which I am a part, a valued member. Help us to love one another and even to express our love in what the ancients called the love feast, the Lord's Supper, communion even now. We ask these things in more in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's children say, Amen.